why does no prayer result in an answer that is a yes? It felt so negative all the time. Everything was just another drop of the hammer. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of the All of Life Show. I am one of your hosts, Stuart White, along with my lovely and beautiful wife, Alicia White. Babe, who do we have on the show this week? Oh, we have actually, ironically, our wedding photographer that photographed our wedding 14 years ago, but also longtime friend. Uh, we used to live in the same town in Arizona, go to the same church, lead worship on the same worship team. Yeah, this is a very special episode to us because we were made aware of a story that she had been telling and she was using Instagram uh, stories to actually get this story out there. And we thought, you know what, this is a really good uh, story that she's telling and we wanted to share it with everybody else. We invited her on the show and we're very excited to share her with you guys and share her story with you. Today we're going to be talking about some tender subjects such as grief and suffering. And if it's something that you guys are struggling with, have been going through, um, we hope that you guys are able to learn from this, glean from this, um, and hear from a person who's been going through it herself. All right. Without further ado, let's get right to the story. Welcome, Kelly Garrishay. So Kelly, we first of all would love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about you and your history and your what kind of brought you to starting the Instagram page um, and then sharing your story. So I'm just going to give you the floor on that. <laughs> you bet. So um, my name is Kelly Garrishay and I was born and raised in Southern California. Um, we lived in a little mountain town, actually, called La Crescenta. Most people haven't heard of it, but it's close to Pasadena, if that rings a bell. And um, as a teenager, I moved to Phoenix, and that was the beginning of my Arizona, sort of half of my life. Um, but I also ended up in a mountain town here. So I live in Prescott, and I've lived here for about 23 years. I've been married for 24, and I've got two kids. My oldest is my son, Isaac, and he goes to ASU. And then my daughter just graduated during all the crazy coronavirus, and she'll be going to GCU in the fall. Class of 2020. And, oh, good. <laughs> Hopefully they'll have that 2020 vision when this is all yeah. over. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um, things I love outside of my family are Jesus, absolutely, first and foremost, um, hosting parties, and my sunroof. Uh, I'm a straight up Enneagram 7, so anytime I can make a mundane moment fun, I'm going to do that. So that's a little bit about me. As a stay-at-home mom, I'd always found um, different part-time jobs and things to do to keep myself um, just feeling like I've got some purpose and some activity in my life. But once the kids hit like high school age, I really found that there was just too much time. Like that three to eight window of seeing them sort of rotate on the revolving door of the house was not like enough time to be with kids and taking care of them and doing the household chores. So I just got really bored, honestly, at like a soul level. I was like, I need something meaningful to do. So um, as that kind of opened up this big space, um, I was like, well, maybe I could start an Instagram page. That's something I really enjoy. Um, and as that sort of started, it was fun, but I wasn't really sure what I was doing. And I was just really getting my feet wet. Um, and then after actually the story that we're talking about today, 
after the story with Marie um, unfolded, that's when I ended up taking it like much more seriously because I felt like I had a real message that I needed to get out. So tell us, who is Marie and how did that become the pivot point of, of your whole Instagram channel? Oh my goodness, that's a very big question. Okay, so Marie was my, like we met in second grade and we were like childhood best friends. Um, all the way through till 10th grade, we were in separate, like the sister kind of best friends, um, vacations, the little BFF necklace where you get one half and she gets the other half, like the whole nine yards. And, um, we were like that all the way through till I moved to Arizona. And after I moved, even though it was really challenging for us to stay connected, it was before Facebook and AOL instant messenger and all the things we didn't have the same um, methods. Like we literally either had to do a long distance phone call, which cost a lot of money back then, or we had to do letters and those things just weren't happening. Not in my family's budget and not in, you know, teenage life where you don't want to sit down and write a letter. Um, so we struggled in our, in our late teenage years and on through our twenties and thirties, but we always stayed connected at that sort of sister level where you just go, we have this history that is super unique and special and a bond that goes way beyond anything that, you know, is just a passing friendship. Um, so what happened was in 2004 or sorry, 2017, I got a phone call from her. I was literally at dinner with my son and she goes, Hey, are you busy? I was like, Oh, I'm just wrapping up this dinner. And you know, as moms, we just are like from one thing to the next to the next. And she actually didn't have any children. So she was just like this steady on the phone presence. I could tell I needed to talk to her. So I kind of shoot off Isaac. I'm like, sorry, talk to you later. Cause he was 16 and he was going one way and I was going another way. So I headed out of the restaurant and walked towards my car and I was like, Hey, what's going on? And she dropped the bomb. She said, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Mm. And then I just like was speechless. First and foremost, I have no experience with what cancer really means. If you say that to me, like, I don't know what stages anything means. I didn't know, like, you know, really only my, my only experience was with movies, what beaches and my life and these harder movies from the eighties. But I was also like 10 when I saw them. So I did not get it at no. all. So I was kind of like very, I don't know, trepidatious, like listening, trying to ask questions and not be obtrusive or offensive or rude or weird. When that came across my life, um, for some reason, I just knew that it was something that God was about to use in our lives. So Kelly, when you got that call from Marie in 2017, what transpired then? The next 16 months, <laughs> the last 16 months of her life, they turned out to be not only the most grueling trial of her life, but it was also one of the most difficult things that I have ever experienced. Just watching her decline was certainly like emotionally attached to this best friend of mine, but also it was so connected to my grand idea of suffering. I did know that in my heart, God had wanted me to be intrinsically involved in every day, like leading to the end of her life. But I also didn't know that it was going to rip my heart out and then throw it on the ground and then stomp on it afterwards. In retrospect, I realized that this was truly like a third trial in a series of trials in my life that all related to suffering. And it dealt just like the heaviest blow to my ego and to my issues with suffering. So tell us a little bit when you say the third, the third season or, or stage of suffering, um, I can't remember the word you use, but tell us about those, those seasons. Okay. I think that when I was a kid growing up, um, the first like layer or the first trial 
that I experienced would be my loneliness. I believe that every person has this hole or this longing for something that will never be filled really here on this earth. And I learned of mine at a pretty early age. When my kids, when my parents were divorced at just two years of age for myself, I ended up living with just my mom and my sister from then on. And I wouldn't say that the divorce was the thing that bothered me so much, but it was the fact that my family was separated. So then my mom had to work so hard to provide for our family. And the fact that I was alone a lot, I was like the Macaulay Culkin of Home Alone of my life. Like I was just always home alone. (laughs) Um, I just was constantly babysat by the television and phone calls with friends, I guess, occasionally as I got older. But my sort of most formative years that I remember, like that set of 12 years old phase, I just felt like I was raised by wolves at that point. I just was alone all the time and just calling my mom saying, when are you going to be home? And you know, what are we going to have for dinner? And just begging her to be there. And she wasn't there because she had to work. And I get that like at a mental level, but the soul level was crying out for that connection. And so that would be like the first realization that I needed something that I wasn't getting. And I think that that's a layer of suffering. Mm. Um, But when I, you know, that was an involuntary thing in my life. And so when I was presented with faith in Christ, I was like, oh my gosh, a promise of someone who's always going to be there, a promise of someone who loves me and cares about me and always, you know, is engaged with me. That's what I want. And so I actually became a believer at just like 13, 14 years of age as a freshman and completely jumped headlong into that. And so what I think happened for me was that I realized that this involuntary trial that I was given, this sort of thing that didn't line up as what I wanted with my soul offered me an opportunity to make a choice of what I was going to fill that with. Am I going to keep trying to do it on my own and just make friends and have fun and whatever that thing is that makes you feel belonging and relationship with others? Or am I going to trust Jesus with that? So that was the first one. And then that's when he moved me to Phoenix and all these crazy things happened in my life. I grew in my faith When I was in Phoenix, I felt like God just completely used that season of life as a major growth season. Um, I actually started leading worship and leading in youth group. And um, I ended up meeting my husband while I was in high school, got married right after. Um, And then I had my first baby when I was just 22. And by the time he was just four years old, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Enter trial number two. Type 1 diabetes is a chronic disease. It's all day, every day. You have to calculate every carb that, well, my son in this case, um, that he eats and then match it with the right amount of insulin. And if you don't do it just right, there's these terrible consequences on one side and terrible consequences on the other side. And then add to that, I saw my son um, just change emotionally and act out because he was unhappy. Mm. Um, that was hard. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I had to poke him every time he wanted to eat or every time I was suspicious, his blood sugar was out of whack on his finger. You know, when you go get your blood drawn or get a lab test taken, they poke your finger um, to get that blood sample. Yeah. I have to do that every time. Well, I mean, at the time he does it himself now, but you have to check your blood sugar by poking your finger every time. And that actually pales next to the shots that you have to take every time you eat. And so it just was like so difficult to hurt this child when you see love as 
belonging and kindness and happiness and, you know, this sort of full, rich experience. And so I felt like I wasn't giving him love. You know, I felt like I was being mean. That's, that definitely has to be hard because to love him, you have to hurt him, essentially. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now that that trial was also involuntary it's an autoimmune disease so it just happens um but i feel like my choice in that trial was whether i was going to be the mom that i always wanted to be i think in in that first trial i i decided what kind of mom i was going to be and it was going to be a present mom a mom who was there and also just to do the hard things that needed to be done and so when it came to the diabetes like I had to then make a choice. Like, am I going to run from this? Am I going to throw a fit? Am I going to, what can I do? Like, no, I need to rise above and I need to die to myself and sacrifice every day. I was waking up in the middle of the night to check him for 10 years. I mean, it's been grueling. Um, But I think the choice was that I wanted to be the person who sticks it out and I wanted to be the person who rose above. And so I dug in with Jesus and we did the hard work. And it took me like 10 years to get over it, um, to come to a point where I could say, okay, God, if this is what you want to do, I, I'm okay with it. I will surrender. So really in that you, this, this one in particular was really preparing you in that third one of caring and loving and and having a deeper level of compassion just simply by choosing to. A hundred percent. I feel like all of it prepared me in different ways. Um, for what was about to happen with Marie in that third trial. When I was presented with this information, really, that's kind of what it was at the moment. You know, she's dropping this bomb, like I have stage four colon cancer. And although in my naivete and my lack of experience, I didn't know what it meant. I have a choice a hundred percent in this trial. This isn't my trial. Technically, Mm. um, God was saying, Hey, look, here's an opportunity. This is a trial that she'll be going through. What are you going to do? And actually, this is something I hadn't thought about until just now. But prior to this season, like a year before this phone call happened, I had been asking God, like, how am I supposed to be friends with her? We are not getting along. Actually, we had had some some really hard conversations. And I was like, do I even have to try? Like, God, what do you want me to do here? I feel like it would be so much easier to just not call as often, you know, just to kind of back away. And that sounds horrible. I hate that that's what my heart is and was and whatever. But the fact of the matter is... I kept asking God and he was silent and he was silent because you know why? I knew exactly what he wanted me to say. Yes, you have to stay. I always stay is what he would say. So therefore I should stay. And so I stayed sort of in my heart, you know, that sort of keeping the will to connect with her, even when it was hard because gosh, bring up that Enneagram seven again. Right. But it was so hard that I was asking that question before. And then now when now, sort of in 2017, when the when the question drops, like, hey, can you help me? I'm going to be going through this trial. Um, I had 100% choice. I could have been a bystander. I could have been a phone call away every time. Um, but there was just this squeeze, this feeling in my heart that God was going to use this not only in Marie's life to show her like the next level of his love, but that also I was going to be changed by it. And so the major work that he wanted to do was a choice that I was surrendering to as well. And when, you know, I kind of see it as this big door that says trial, like, are you going to do this right now? And I had the choice to open the door or not. And then I chose to walk through it. So let's dig into that a little bit. What transpired in this trial? What was um, 
a picture of that like? And and you don't have to go into every detail, but give us a picture into Marie's life and what you learned through this and what she learned through this and how you see God's hand in retrospect moving in this experience. When Marie asked me if I could be her cheerleader, her support system, her communicator to other people so that she didn't have to field every phone call. Um, Those things were sort of an automatic yes to me. I thought, of course, you know, 100%, I'll be there. You call me, you need me. I'm just right here. I'm available. But what ended up transpiring was that as her health got worse through chemo, certainly, and the treatment was hard on her, um, but also just the cancer taking over and making her body in so much pain. And then um, I, I almost see it as like glitching out, like one thing goes wrong and then another thing goes wrong and you have to go back to the clinic and then you get a fever and like all these crazy things happen when you have cancer. And then when you put chemo on top of it, it kind of makes it worse. You're trying to kill it, but then you're killing uh, all the healthy parts of the person. But so she was so physically incapable of getting herself to the clinic and getting back and getting home and making meals and even just personal care um, that her husband as a pilot being gone quite frequently. um, She just had these five day stints where she had no one there to take care of her. They had just moved to their town um, in Minneapolis when she was like six months before she was diagnosed. So they she didn't have a lot of strong relationships there. And so I talked to my husband and I said, you know, I really feel like I need to go and be there for her. And he said, you do whatever you need to do. It doesn't matter how much it costs. It doesn't matter what it costs the family as far as time from you, whatever. He said, you do what you need to do. And we're 100% supporting you and we'll be fine. And so um, I've looking back, these are all such huge provisions for me to be able to be there for her. And I feel like God was setting all that up so that I could go but I ended up taking 10 trips. I mean, five of them were to Minnesota and five of them were to California, but they were all five days long each. And I went and I took her to appointments and I made her meals and then I made backup meals and I put them in the freezer. And then she, you know, was in pain management. She was in the pain, honestly, was the the biggest thing. But she also, since it was colon cancer, was having so many digestive problems um, that she couldn't eat what she needed. And then she didn't have the energy. I look back on it and it is mind boggling to me to see how many things were taken away from her, even while she was still alive. And those things just like every time one happened, it just hurt again and it hurt again. And it put her in this place where I was asking God, I was like, why do you keep putting her between a rock and a hard place? Like, why does no prayer result in an answer that is a yes? It felt so negative all the time. Everything was just another drop of the hammer. The amazing thing that happened in it was that I felt like when I was lacing up my tennis shoes to go to the airport, like I was getting ready to be Jesus's hands and feet. I felt like this was not about me, not even a little bit. And I would take myself off and I would put Jesus on and I would be on until the moment I got back on the airplane to come home. My goal when I was with her was to just continue bringing attention to the gifts that were there. And something I talked about all the time with her was that we would have never been afforded five sleepovers in a row as 40-year-old women. (laughs) And so we were catching up on 20 plus years of not being close and 
we learned a new closeness through this. It was really incredible. What's something that you discovered about yourself and or others in this whole thing that's kind of surprised you or or jumped out at you? Well, I would say I tend to be sort of caught up in the moment a lot as a very enthusiastic person and a person with a lot of energy. And when Marie's pain and her trial, just the heaviness of it that it brought, um, gave me an opportunity to truly lay myself down and just stop, (laughs) just to stop being the way that I was. And that sounds a little bit odd. I think I needed to be loving to her. And that meant that I needed to stop doing what was natural to me. And I think that was the, was the most surprising to me that we can actually change more than we think we can when we're surrendered to God and his will and what he wants. That's, that's really deep. I, I like that a lot because I think that Christians fall victim very often to a worldly mentality of that. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know, I'm, I'm set in my mm-hmm. ways and the belief of that alone is enough to to make it true, you know, and, uh, but we believe in a God who is bigger than us, bigger than a situation or a problem or even a personality and having that heart Mm. and that willingness to, to just go, God, what do you, what do you want in me through this? What are you doing in me? Um, and you don't, you know, I'm sure you, you would say in that moment going through all of it, you aren't necessarily completely aware consciously of all the things going on. But as you reflect on it, as you look back, you see, oh, there's the presence of God there. You know, there are his fingerprints Mm. in all of this. And, you know, I had no idea that um, he he was even at, at work in these moments, but it's in these like seemingly little insignificant moments that he's, he is showing up. Well, and the connection too, as I'm listening to you tell this story of how you had to change the, the parts that came more naturally to you to be loving to Marie and then going back and seeing the connection with when Isaac got diagnosed and you had to change Mm -hmm. what was natural to you wanting to like snuggle him, love on him, not inflict any pain on him. But in order to love him that way, you had to go against what was natural to you by poking him, you know, and just like that simple little connection is so it's just like such a a gift, like seeing God's grace in your life, preparing you for this, for this moment is just like the, the coolest thing, you know? Absolutely. That was profound to me hearing it from you for the first time. That's incredible. How did you see this um, play out in Marie's life during that process too? Like, I know you, I don't want you to presumptuously speak for her, but what things do you think that, Mm. that you saw that was God's hand in her life as well? This is a hard one because I obviously don't know everything that she was thinking and feeling. Um, But what I can tell from the outside was that Marie had seemed to build a life that she believed would work in her favor. So what I mean by that is that she believed in health and in fitness and in, you know, eating right, you know, very organic and taking the stairs and sort of all the actually kind of very California mentality in my mind, I guess, but do all she, the things right uh, and you'll get the right. Result. Yeah. If you do this right, exactly. And she actually was holding out hope to have a baby because she ended up getting married late 
in life, later in life. And she was hoping and putting all of her eggs in that basket. If I do this, then I will still be able to have a child, even though I'm older than I wanted to be when I had, you know, to have that child. And for her to get cancer was almost like this slap in the face. Like, wait a minute, I did do everything right. I don't drink through plastic lids at the coffee shop. I, you know, (laughs) that's just one more added layer, like all these different things that she was keeping score with of these are the reasons I'm good to go. And then that cancer layer was first. And then it was, oh, guess what? You have to be on a low fiber diet. You have to be like on a white diet, you know, potatoes and like lame food that she didn't want to eat because she felt like that was against her ideals of eating green food, you know, to simplify it. But she got, you know, first it was the cancer, then it was the food. And then after the food, it was, okay, now you don't have energy to even go for a walk, which you think is healing and and wonderful for your body. And it is. But now she can't even do that. And then it was like, okay, you don't even want to get out of bed. Okay, you don't even want to connect with your husband because you're exhausted and you can't even handle a phone call. I mean, we are talking the most smallest of pleasures. I feel like all of them were taken away. Like I would come home from these trips and realize that she was angry about not even being able to go outside and look at the flowers and take a moment to like watch squirrels. Like how many of us are like, oh, woe is me. I didn't, I didn't get to sleep all the way till my alarm went off. You know what I mean? And then she's over here. Like, I can't even go outside. I don't have the energy to get up. Wow. So it was this huge recalibration for me to realize like what the scope of suffering was because I had taken so many things for granted. <sighs> wow. Um, Hearing you share that part of, um, cause again, this is something Christian's unknowingly we believe it and there's nothing wrong with health there's nothing wrong with doing those things but in a a way it becomes uh, a false god or a a hope an idol that Mm -hmm. if I do this I have control if I have Mm -hmm. um, all of the my ducks in a row and and all the health things and but uh, it reminds me of the passage that Jesus talks about the parable of the the man who saved up and saved up his whole life and mm. he has these storehouses and then he he's like, all right, finally I, I can, mm-hmm. you know, retire. And the Lord says to him, don't you know that this night your life is going to be required of you? Just thinking like, oh yeah, like as a Christian, we, we know uh, that our life is not our own, or at least we hear that, but we don't often see or believe that we don't operate as if that's true. That's not functionally how it plays out all the time. And to hear your, your account and your story, as hard as that is too, to, to know like, oh man, this, this was, I hurt for her hearing that. Like that's, that's not easy stuff, but also having that reminder that, Hey, all the things that I think I have plans for, all the things that I think are important and will, will add life and longevity and health and joy maybe they won't even matter because <laughs> God knows what's going on. God knows where my, my hope is. And I think of, um, th- this is a little bit off, but uh, John Piper has this, this account of he, his goal in life is not to retire and walk on the beach and collect seashells. Mm. He's like, that's not what I'm here to do. That's not what I'm called to do. That shouldn't be any of our goal. Not that those things are bad, but but your whole life, like if you understand it, it is you exist to glorify God and enjoy Him, and and when you enjoy mm-hmm. Him, you're bringing glory to Him, and your greatest joy is found in bringing Him glory, and like all of these principles that we seem to have forgotten. 
we we get off track with several different things, such as you know health or, or whatever else. Things that are good in and of themselves, totally fine. Mm-hmm. But that rings with me. So Marie, um, you walked this journey with Marie. Did you say sixteen months? Yeah. And then tell us a little bit. I th- I think all of our listeners will probably want to know at sixteen mm-hmm. months what you know walk us through that what happened and how have things been for you since then okay so I'm gonna scooch back a little bit right after what I just dropped off like so all those layers have been taken from Mm -hmm. her but what happened was that once those things were all removed her heart was like what else what is there Mm -hmm. and so I was able to share um, from a place of vulnerability and sweetness and Um, just like almost as a promise, like, look, my relationship with God, when I left California, when I left you, I dove headlong into it. And this is what my life has been like with him. Perfect. Absolutely not present. Yes. Loved. Yes. You know, change, surrender, you know, all the things that God is comfort, you know, those things are available through him and he wants more of you. He wants all of you. And I think that without having stripped those things away from her, that God would not have been as desirable to her Mm. because she was still putting her hope in that main, you know, if I do this, then I will Mm. get a child and that child will fill my heart's hole. Like, you know, mine might've been belonging while she wanted to be a mother. And so as that all transpired, um, she ended up going in for a a surgery and the anesthesiologist said, Hey, what do you, do you have a preference for your religious background or whatever? And she usually says nothing because she hates being vulnerable with new people. Um, She goes, Nope, none. Every time this time, right after I had shared my whole heart with her and said, God wants more of you. He wants all of you. She said Christian that day. And he goes, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. I'm a Christian. And I believe that my job, like my calling in life is to pray for my uh, patients before they go under. Mm-hmm. And I want to pray for you for radical healing. And would you allow me to do that? And in that moment, her and her mom and the anesthesiologist were, they were in the bubble. Like Jesus was there that moment. And they wept because that's what they needed that day. That's what Marie needed to hear. Um, was that someone still believed for her and that someone um, knew that she had value. He talked about how she was unique to God and how God made her specifically for a purpose and all these different things. And that story is like, to me, the most valuable out of the entire experience because she then started again, because I believe she had faith, but this was the intimate faith that Jesus wanted from her, like a hundred percent in from her. And when she gave her heart to him that day, again, I um, watched her like bloom into her faith and she had him with her, like every moment of those, unfortunately bed moments, like she was in her bed Mm. constantly. And um, her mother told me a story that one of the days the pain was so bad and she got up on her knees and she said, and she was just like rocking back and forth to try to like, you know, you manage this pain in your life and you like physically, and you like just need to move your body. And she was rocking back and forth. And she was like, I have the power to get through this because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of a statement coming from someone who had never done a Bible study, really, like it was unbelievable to see her faith just completely bloom and go crazy from there. Um, and although she passed away, um, in May of 2018, um, she, she left behind a husband 
and her parents and a brother and a couple of nieces. And I check on them often. I like all their pictures on her behalf on Facebook and send them text messages of love. But for me personally, I was grieving in a very unusual way because it was just so complex. The fact that we had rebuilt a friendship and then I lost it again, that was a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just had so many things going on in my life. With My, my son graduated from high school that year. Um, I was doing like a graduation party, I think, gosh, 10 days after she passed away. And then the funeral was another 10 days after that. Like, I was just, it was one thing after another. I didn't have any time uh, to really process what had been going on. So after (laughs) January, literally like seven months later, when January 1st hit, it was like the fog lifted, like the pace of my life finally calmed down. And I got a counselor and I started doing sessions with a counselor and starting my story from beginning to end and letting someone hear basically what I've unfolded here for you today um, was what I needed just to like almost to prove to myself that it really happened. Like the validation that someone else heard me say it. Okay. And now that makes it real. Like this isn't beaches. This isn't a movie. I, I never imagined something of this like magnitude would happen in my life when I was able to get it out even verbally to her, that was powerful for me. And then I ended up writing it. So I have a a sort of book, I guess, in the works. Not sure what God has planned for that, but I've written out every chapter from, you know, here I was this latchkey kid, and then I met this friend, and then we struggled through, and then the cancer happened, and then she passed away. And guess what? Suffering. Here's what what I learned. Um, But that also just processing and valid getting getting the validation like that was a huge way for me to be able to get through it because at least I could try to make sense of what had just happened so how would you say because I'm I'm hearing you explain this process of grief that you went through or grieving um how would you say grieving in this instance is different than suffering that you had been the suffering that you had been through before interesting um I think suffering is what happens when you realize that things aren't the way that you want them to be or the way that you feel like they are supposed to be. So if there's a misalignment of your needs or your wants or whatever that thing is, and you don't get that, then that's what the suffering is. So I feel like I ought to be connected with my best friend. My best friend should still be alive. She should be able to live 75 years those things. And now those things are not happening. And now grieving is what happens until you can make sense of it and accept that new reality and move forward in whatever way that looks like for you. So what's what's something you hope that people, our listeners take away from hearing your story, from hearing Marie's story? Well, this might be an interesting way to look at it. But when I look back on how this time in my life impacted me on such a deep level, it's because I believe that I was letting like Marie's circumstances, her suffering represent the suffering of like the entire world. I mean, that sounds a little incongruent, but I wasn't really just only contending for Marie's suffering to God, but I was wanting God to get rid of suffering altogether. This was my heart saying, I don't want suffering at all, not just for Marie, but for anyone. 
And so when he didn't, I had to face the hard truth that God must have, like absolutely must have a reason for all these sufferings in our lives. And that it serves a purpose that I just can't understand. If I couldn't come to a place where I could let God be God and just surrender that desire for all suffering to go away, if I couldn't surrender that, then I was going to be miserable my whole life. Um, I had to choose to let God be God and then know that he's good, even when suffering comes so bad that it just devastates people's lives. Like that is a big question. And so when anyone who is hearing this, if anyone dares to address that question for themselves that God brought me to, that that conclusion, conclusion that God is faithful, even in the worst of sufferings, if you even dare to propose the question and walk into it, I would pray for that person that they would be able to believe that because God is who he says he is. And suffering doesn't take anything away from who he is. He's not trying to hurt us, right? Like with my son, Mm. he has to allow that in order for us to be able to live, to move on, to get better, to be more like him. To grow. And you kind of, you touched on this, but maybe unpack this a little bit more. What, how would you encourage someone who is going through a season of suffering or grief or even a, a lifetime of suffering and grief and just sitting there and wondering, God, where are you? God, how could you? Mm. How can this be fair? How can this be right? Mm. Well, the interesting part is that you asked like five questions right there. And that is my answer is to just ask God questions, mm. a ton of questions. When I look back on this whole season in particular, you know, with Marie, that it was like, God, how can you allow such bad things to happen? Is Marie going to make it? Why do you keep putting her between a rock and a hard place? I was never stopping asking questions. And every time I asked a question, I felt like it was matched with an answer. And it doesn't always come, you know, with this loud boom, obviously. God's not a big loud boom speaker. He hasn't put anything on a billboard for me this week, but he answers, you know, quietly in my heart. He answers through nature and he answers through support and care and love from others. And he shows up in so many ways that like, I believe that when you engage with him honestly, and you give him your hard questions, that he can handle it and he will answer. And so in the, you know, spirit of the, my young daughter, it's like, throw hands, throw hands with God, give him your hard stuff. Don't hold back because not only can he handle it, he wants it from you. Mm -hmm. He wants to have that engagement. And he's, he does speak now, not just through the Bible. Yes. The Bible is a hundred percent there. And if you hear something that isn't in line with the Bible, then there's a problem, but that's what I'm saying. Like go after him and ask him until he answers your questions. I really appreciate that. Cause I, I know for myself and I, I'm, I'm sure I can speak for others in this is the temptation is to think, uh, and maybe this is from like an upbringing, uh, a parent who, who was strict or something, but you're just like, Oh no, I can't, I can't do that. Mm. I can't question God. I can't go, where are you? But you look in the Psalms, you look at David and he just pours Mm -hmm. his heart out. And sometimes it's like, whoa, I'm a little uncomfortable reading this. Like, dude, God's (laughs) going to strike you dead. And God's like, no, I'm, I want it. I can receive it. I can take it. Um, And, and ultimately what the gospel says is he has taken it. He has taken our pain. He has Mm -hmm. taken our suffering and he's bore Mm -hmm. our sins and our grief. And, you know, there is hope because of that. And not only did he take it and bear it and and die in our place, but he's risen again. And, you know, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. But what I appreciate is scripture doesn't say we don't mourn. It just says, no, Uh, we we don't mourn like those who have no hope. We, 
we know. And so we have the freedom to mourn. We have the freedom to grieve. But we also know that we ultimately will have eternal freedom, eternal life with, with Christ. So, And how good the, the Lord is. Like we can, we can grieve on this earth as someone who has hope for the future and for eternity where there will be no more pain and no more suffering anymore. But then the beautiful way in which he meets us here on this earth, even through the pain, just like I'm sure every time you had to poke Isaac um, or walk through something difficult with Marie, you were there comforting and speaking to and um, just offering that support. And when you were saying, I, this is the part from the last statement that you made, the that I really connected with, like the ways in which the Lord, the different ways in which the Lord meets us and speaks to us. And I just think even like for me and for Stu, like the things that we've been through in the last couple of years that have led us to like suffering and grieving in ways that we never have before. Um, and, and doing exactly what you said, like asking questions and like throwing hands with God and then (laughs) literally like going through this podcast episode and listening to your story and the things like the connections, the questions that I have asked God that you have answered for me through your story. And, and that's the beautiful thing about the Lord is like, he meets us in the way that we need to hear it. And people say like, where's God? I don't feel him. I don't hear him speaking to me. And that's because somehow we've been trained to like, listen for this audible voice or, you know, see, a like, I don't know, like be washed over with this, these feelings. But I'm like, I'm like feeling the Lord speak to me through your story. And, um, and that's why it's a beautiful thing that you're sharing it because it is, it is affecting people. It's changing people. And it's, it is the Lord, like you said, lacing up your tennis shoes to go to the airport and ready to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And like that work I believe for you is just beginning, you know? Mm, that was like unreal statement. I appreciate so much all of those words. There was one thing that came to my mind while you're speaking is that a friend of mine said to me recently, it is so hard to hear God or to feel God when you don't want to do what he wants you to do. Mm. And that is one thing that I think I would love to say here is that if you feel like you can't hear God or you can't feel God, tell him you don't want to do what it is he wants you to do. I did that a hundred times when I told you I was like feeling this pain of like, oh, it would be so much easier not to do this. But I would ask the question. And then even, even when he wasn't answering me, right, I felt like he wasn't answering me. The fact of the matter is I knew that the, I knew what the answer was and I needed to soften my heart over and over again to surrender to him, say, okay, you know what? I'll do what I know I need to do. And so once we can give up enough to surrender into him, then like that softness of your heart makes it so that you can hear him easier and easier every time. I just long for people to have that because it changes your life. I love that. That's, it's very um, garden of Gethsemane, I guess you could say with Jesus Mm. praying and saying, you know, he wasn't like, Hey, yep. No, no problems here. Everything's going to be good. Yep. I got this whole cross thing. I know what's going on. He's like anxious, sweating drops of blood and praying, you know, if, if possible, let it pass from me, but nevertheless, let not my will be done, but, but yours, you know? And, uh, I, I love that. Cause it's like, if we worship a God, Jesus, who that is the, the standard he set, if, if he's not acting too big to, to even say that, then 
we are no better than the master, you know, so we, mm. we should not feel like, oh, well, no, I got to keep this to myself. And I think for men, a lot of men, that's something they struggle with is I can't speak of my struggles because if I look weak, then, then I'm going mm. to um, be less of a man. And, um, and I'm sure women do too, but I, I don't want to be presumptuous in the way I share that. But, um, well, Kelly, we really appreciate you coming on the show. And this was something we were really looking forward to and just incredibly satisfied with how this conversation has gone, how the story has gone. And, uh, I don't, I don't think we want this to be our, our last time having you on. In fact, um, there, there may be even more to unpack with this and, um, we, we really want to have you on. What is a way or several ways that listeners can connect with you if they'd like? Well, I'm very active on my Instagram page. I actually put um, a series of videos. There are 18 videos of the story of Marie, if you want to hear how it unfolded um, sort of story by story. And those are all on my Instagram IGTV. So my Instagram handle is Kelly Garishay, Kelly with a Y, G-A-R-A-S-H-A-Y. And that is the first way to find me. And I also have a blog through there as well. So if you're not a video person, you want to read it, the blog posts are on my blog. And um, I post a lot about just um, trying to find the bright side in the middle of this crazy world that we live in. And um, just Christian living and different things that God has taught me along the way. And I'm passing them on. We love that. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. And uh, we are just really excited. And folks, if uh, you have enjoyed this, please do go and check out her page. Watch her stories. They are really good. Um, and it, it gives you a, even more in-depth um, than we even have time in one episode to share. But if things about this story have reached you, yes, please go check them out. And if you are suffering or grieving in your own circumstances right now, please know that um, we are welcoming you to reach out so that we can pray for you, so that we can walk through it with you. I know Kelly feels the same way. So um, don't hold it inside. Reach out to um, people that love you and want to walk you through it. All right. Well, thank you guys. We love you and we will catch you next time.